This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. What does it mean to be a city engineer and a public servant? I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I will be talking with Dr. Kara Boyles, the first female city engineer in the city of South Bend. And she's going to talk about a lot of things, one of them being, what does it mean to be a city engineer? She also talks about leadership. She oversees a team of 19 people. And she talks about some cool technology like smart sewers and some of the things that they're doing in the city of South Bend. Really, I thought this was a cool interview with Kara because she's had such a varied career. She's been in the private side. She's been on the public side, obviously. She's been in public works before. She has a bachelor's degree. She has a PhD in engineering. She's going for an MBA. So she just has a lot of experience. And I really think a lot of that came through on the episode today. Before we dive into the episode today, I'd like to remind you that at the Engineering Management Institute, we create professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. What is a professional development system? Typically, a PDS consists of a variety of benefits and programs focused on attracting, developing, and retaining top talent in the industry. For example, some of the components of a PDS might include a content sponsorship across our platform to put your firm in front of top talent. Maybe you enroll your team members in some of our learning and development programs, project management, people leadership, or business development. Or we can work with your firm and customize some of these programs and create a company-specific program. Or as part of your PDS, maybe we build career roadmaps and pathways for your employees to follow. If you are not building a professional development system for your firm that's focused on attracting, developing, and retaining top talent, then your firm will have a difficult time growing sustainably for the long term. To learn more, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and click on the button to learn about our three-step process for building your professional development system. Now it's time for our conversation of the week. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'm excited to welcome on our guests to the podcast today. Dr. Kara Boyles is a registered professional engineer who became the city of South Bend's first female city engineer in 2017. Kara, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you, Anthony. It is a pleasure to be here. Really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, for sure. Me too. I'm really excited. You've had some really awesome experiences in your career so far, and I'm excited to kind of dive into those with you. And I guess to start us off, Kara, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey? I mean, as I just said, you are the first woman to serve as city engineer for South Bend. So tell us about the journey there. And of course, tell us a little bit about what you do in the city of South Bend. As I was growing up, I really did enjoy math, probably a little bit of science. I think what I really enjoyed about it was the challenge that came with it. I can recall working on problem sets in high school 
high school calculus specifically, and you get stuck on a solution and there was just nothing like being able to identify, well, what's that next step I need? What's that next step that would allow me to solve for that final answer so that I could finally draw that box, right? Draw that box around the solution. I think that's where I, I first began to feel like this is, this is probably my place. It was the early 90s, so a female studying engineering was pretty unique. It was still sort of something new, but for me, it seemed like an exciting proposition. So it also seemed practical and uh, seemed like a really great choice, you know, moving forward with a career. I graduated from Bradley University with my bachelor's in civil engineering and then a master's in civil. And soon after that, then I moved on to work on my PhD at the University of Notre Dame. It was almost a decade-long journey in which I took a break. I had a baby. I worked as a consulting engineer for a local firm for a period there. I also then went back to school. I had another baby and then literally defended my dissertation, I think, when she was six weeks old. A story I like to tell when I'm sharing my journey, because I think it's one that's pivotal to my story. In my first job as a consulting engineer, I was a project engineer. I worked for a local engineering firm. And at the time where the two namesakes for the firm, of course, they were still very actively engaged in running the business and a lot of formative lessons. There are a lot of great experiences in that period of time. What happened was I had a, a, one of the owners and his main role, I think, in the firm was really to help mentor the firm's younger engineers. It wasn't unusual for him to gather up a group of us and take us to lunch and share engineering stories, which now I understand was his way of really engaging and inspiring that next generation of leaders in their firm. And one of these lunches he took me on, I got to meet the city engineer at that time. And I watched, I listened. He was so highly regarded by our owner. He was inspiring. He was so connected to South Bend. The conversation would drift from one topic to the next, and he was so well-versed. I knew right there at that moment that I wanted his job one day. And uh, I think that owner would probably be surprised that that was what I took away from that day. That was probably 20 years before I became city engineer. I think something that's important about that is, especially for those of you listening that maybe are firm leaders, is it's good to have someone that's really has a focus on that culture of the company, you know, building the next generation, providing mentoring, just thinking about people's growth and development. I mean, we, you know, at EMI, that's kind of what we do. And we often talk to firms and they just, they're not thinking necessarily about the career pathways of their professionals and where they're going and how they can help them with that. And obviously you could see the impact that at Howland Cara having these lunches and having these conversations and they really do matter. That's a really important part of one's progression. Absolutely. It's probably hard to believe, but then when I did finally join the city, it was quickly recognized that I was, in fact, the first woman engineer in that department. I had, prior to that, spent some time on the public side, working for another municipality, and then again on the private side. So I have been on both sides, which I think is why I'm well-suited at this point um, as city engineer. And you also teach still. I do. I'm an adjunct professor at Notre Dame, and I teach a course in project-based community leadership. 
Wow, that's really awesome. And for those out there that are Notre Dame football fans, which you might be, sometimes people don't know that South Bend is where Notre Dame is. They just hear Notre Dame and they watch it on TV. And so, I mean, my best friend growing up, he's always been a fan and he went to Notre Dame. So I've always kind of been around it and kind of cheered along with him. That's great to be able to been on the private side, now a city engineer. So you understand kind of both sides of that equation. You're also still have the opportunity to teach and connect with, again, the next generation of engineers. So certainly kind of very well-rounded. So for those listeners out there that maybe think about a city engineer, maybe they want to become a city engineer one day, maybe you could talk about what a city engineer does. What are some of the things you do on a day-to-day basis? So as city engineer, I'm responsible for all public works improvements. That includes the planning, the design, the construction of all capital improvements related to city-owned assets, as well as some private development or redevelopment projects that are receiving public funds towards their improvements. But the majority of time, our work is within the public right-of-way or it's contained on, again, city property. We're talking about roadway infrastructure, demolitions, remodels, rehabilitations of buildings, drinking water treatment, wastewater treatment water resources, all aspects of civil engineering. I lead a team of 19, which includes 12 engineers, and they're all at varying levels of their career. They all wear many hats. Sometimes they're designer, sometimes inspector, but mostly that of a project manager. We do a small portion of design work in-house, but most of our work is being performed by architectural engineering consultants. In a typical year, we probably initiate 100 new engineering projects within the city, and we review two to three times that in private developments. Of course, we've got some really good economic times right now that help explain that. We issue all permits for work in the right-of-way. We update ordinances, draft resolutions, really create a lot of the policies that go along with public works. But I always like to say, mostly I attend a lot of meetings. I spend probably 75% of a typical day in meetings. And I joke often about the number of unread emails that I have because I'm spending so much time in meetings. When I was a younger engineer, I could not bear to have any unread emails, right? I was cleaning those emails, clearing those emails nonstop. When I say that I have like 5,000 unread emails, people usually gasp, but I do. (laughs) Not proud of that. First of all, I've done a lot of podcast interviews and you know, I think you're one of those people that you could tell five minutes into the interview that you love what you do. You could tell the way you talk about your job, you love it. And we'll get into that in a minute. But the one thing I want to ask you here, you know, you talked about overseeing a team in 19, which is a good sized team. You talked about all the different things that you're kind of responsible for overseeing in the city. That obviously requires a lot of people interaction, people interaction with your team members, people interaction with consultants that might be doing the work for you on some of your projects. I'm sure you interact with the public from time to time, you and your team. For an engineer that went to school for engineering, how did you work on and develop the skills that you needed to be able to be the leader that you are in terms of interacting with people in addition to the technical side of things? I believe as civil engineers, First and foremost, we get the opportunity to see very clearly, I think early on in our careers, that we get to make a difference in people's life. And we do that every day in what we do at the city of South Bend. My first job, I worked for the Illinois Department of Transportation as an intern. And I could even see then how civil engineering really affects people's lives in many ways that most take for granted. And I think this was just, this continued to be reinforced during my time as a municipal engineer. 
in the city, our mission is that we deliver services that empower everyone to thrive. And that's a really heavy statement when you think about it. There's a lot of weight behind that. And I take that responsibility very seriously. What we do, our actions impact people's lives every day. We get real comfortable with this mission because the mission gives us direction. You know, it serves as our guide for how we make decisions. It's just essential. Is that the reason that you kind of stayed, ended up staying in the public side and you're still there? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, what we do, you know, it matters. It just touches all people's lives and we're in the details of it every day. I mean, I haven't worked as a city engineer, but I've represented in the private side, we've represented municipalities and there's certainly a responsibility that comes with it. And I think it's great to know that you can have an impact on the citizens of that community and that if you don't do something or you're not on top of it, it could affect the safety, their health. So it is definitely a big responsibility, but at the same time, that means you can have an impact. And I think most engineers that I talk to, that's what they're looking to do in their careers is they want to have a positive impact. And so you talked about a lot of things that you do for the city. You know, One of the things you mentioned was infrastructure. Talk about infrastructure, well-planned infrastructure. That's a real buzzword in today's world, all this new funding for infrastructure. You know, As a city engineer, you're responsible for overseeing the, the city's infrastructure. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think that kind of goes with that same question, right? When we know the mission and we understand the values, we can translate that into, I always, I try to tell my team, we translate into that our own why, right? Our intention behind what we do. And what we do is translated through how we spend money. And we're responsible for that robust, well-planned infrastructure, everything from paving roads, replacing curbs and sidewalks, investing in our sewer water systems. So we're actually in the midst of implementing a 10-year street improvement plan. So this is a really novel project for us as a city. For the longest time, our paving was an annual program, an annual plan that we basically laid out every year after our harsh Midwest winter. And it typically focused on the worst roads and oftentimes the roads in which the loudest complaints were being heard. You've heard that saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And and that was happening in this case. I always like to say, don't forget that silent hub, if you overlook it, right, or you neglect it it's going to get worse. And there is no correlation that exists between loudness and merit. In 2018, we actually did a survey across the community. I mean, it was kind of a satisfaction survey. And we wanted to know what our residents were thinking. And one of the highest priorities that was identified was the maintenance of our city streets. And about 19% reported satisfaction and almost 75% were dissatisfied with the condition of their streets. That was not news to us, but I think along with that, the thing to understand, and this is an interesting metric for all of us to consider, that as of 2019, our city had received enough public funding to pave each lane mile of our streets roughly once every 100 years. And at best, we were only paving 15 to 20 lane miles a year using internal crews and maybe a little bit of outside contracting. So we really had to be creative here. We had to start identifying alternative sources of funding, start setting more measurable benchmarks if we were ever going to meet these expectations of our residents. So the first thing we did was we kind of set out some guiding principles. And for most of the preservation across the city, we were doing asphalt mill and fill. 
But those were, again, being done by our internal teams. Sometimes streets would just fall behind, right? And they would become, and they would, condition of them would get extremely poor and it would be beyond then the scope of our team. So these streets might just be neglected for years. So the plan we set out was to first and foremost address these long neglected streets, the ones that were in the worst condition. We also wanted to raise the bar in terms of the overall condition of our streets. So raise that average across the city. And we wanted to create geographical equity with this plan so that the average condition of our streets in any area of the city was equivalent. We wanted also to use data and make good long-term decisions. And we also wanted to make this public facing so that we could share information with our residents so they understood why we were making the decisions we were, create that transparency. The more people will have access to the information, you know, the more empowered everyone would be. That was a great example of how we were taking a pretty reactive approach and now a much more proactive approach to addressing our streets by laying out pretty aggressive 10-year plan where we're spending. It's changing. Let me just say that. It keeps changing each day as bid prices keep changing, but anywhere from 30 to $35 million in the first three years. What I really like about that, and I think it's a good lesson for everybody, is the approach of listening to the citizens in this case. I think that could be used if you're in the private side of things. You need to listen to your clients and understand what their needs are. I think, again, if you're a firm leader, you want to listen to your people that work at the company and understand what their needs are. I think it's just a great approach to really anything you do in your career is understanding what the needs are of the people that you're working with and address it and kind of be proactive, like Kara said, as opposed to being reactive. Because I do feel like a lot of engineers, are, we are reactive. I mean, I understand in some ways it is the nature of our business, right? Something happens and you get a call and you need to address it. That makes sense. We don't need to do that in every aspect of what we do in our careers in terms of being reactive. That's important. So I definitely think that that's an awesome approach in terms of, in this case, from a city engineer's perspective, but I think it can certainly translate into different areas. Kara, I know one of the things that you're looking into or working on there is smart sewers, smart streets. Tell us a little bit about South Bend's desire to be smart and what exactly that means. One of the core values of our city is excellence. And excellence means setting a goal for everything we do to be the best in our state, best in the country. And one of the ways we do this is by leveraging technology to make life better for our residents. So in South Bend, that really started with smart sewers, where we essentially are the test bed. We were the test bed for piloting sensors that were being developed at the same time in the lab and then tested in our combined sewer system. So this is a network of depth and flow sensors. I think we have around 150 throughout our 600 miles of sewers. And there are some smart valves as well. So they measure water levels and redirect flow from trunk lines that are nearing capacity to those that actually have capacity at the time. Remember, storms aren't evenly distributed across our systems. You know, you can have a storm in one area of your city where the sewers might be impacted in another area where they're not. These sensors then communicate with each other and help to prevent combined sewer overflows. And so we are able to use this kind of information that we gained from many years of collecting data to renegotiate our federal consent decree that we have with the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Justice. And that's for our long-term control plan. Our original plan was estimated to cost over $700 million. 
And that's a really significant burden on our rate payers. The data and analytics, though, that we found from this smart sewer network helped us find significant savings, reducing that commitment to less than $300 million. It also helped us to negotiate and extend the time frame. And it's actually better for the environment. Our new plan is going to capture and treat 99.6% of the combined sewage that gets generated on a typical wet weather event and achieve greater E. coli reduction and in general be less disruptive to our community because the number of improvements have gone down because we're able to do more inline, less above ground type improvements. So we're actually in the process of um, designing our first CSO tank project at this time. That's awesome. And I really like that, especially with like weather patterns and, you know, us experiencing sometimes more of these big storm events than we have in the past and having technology like that can be really beneficial and obviously preventing or minimizing some of the flooding that we've had a lot of problems with across the country. So it sounds like that's, again, taking a look at data, taking a look at what's been happening and then coming up with smart solutions to address it, which I think really is truly the way of the future. And it's good to see that South Bend is kind of one of the leaders here in that realm. Kara, you've talked about your role in the city. You've talked about how you do oversee a team of 19 people. Talk to us a little bit about some key leadership principles and core values that really help guide you as a leader. My leadership principles definitely flow out of practicing two of my own really specific core values. And the first is to be authentic. I tell my engineers, bring your whole self to work. Studies have shown that feeling authentic at work has been linked to higher engagement, higher workplace satisfaction, better performance, and better overall well-being. We can all acknowledge this is a leadership trait we'd all like to have, but it can be trickier for a woman in engineering. I'll give you an example of this. 20 years ago, my first place of work there was a dress code. And the dress code meant I had to wear pantyhose if I was wearing a dress or a skirt. My shoes had to be closed toes. All my shirts had to be tucked in. And I think we today would all agree that this sounds a bit antiquated. I preface this by acknowledging, of course, that if you're a leader or you have power within an organization, you know, it is much easier to be authentic, but I don't want that to be true. Any given day when you walk around my office, who knows what you're going to see? I personally might have on ripped jeans. I might be, but I might be wearing a dress, right? Or I might be wearing a suit. I guess the basis is there is no dress code. This helps this idea of authenticity is something for me, I think that's really rooted in the culture and the environment that I came up in as an engineer. Over the years, I've really tried to bring compassion and empathy to the workplace. Sometimes I'm probably perceived as too passionate or too direct when really I just want to be clear, right? I want to be clear. I want to be concise. I have to continually remind myself that it's not rude to be direct, but it is rude to keep people in the dark. It's necessary for leaders to sometimes show their frustrations, right? To allow employees to understand things like how an action that we took or maybe a lack of action has impacted our progress. You know, something we did or didn't do, did the schedule slip because of that? Did the budget get blown because of that? And the fact that that has real impacts for our customers or our residents and I find that to be of one of those really strong core values. Another one of those is truth. And so it's kind of similar, 
I think truthfulness, I gravitated to this when I was practicing and studying yoga. And truthfulness is a practice of yoga in and of itself. It's, it's one of the moral codes. And it's about seeing the truth or reality in our situations. It's about being completely honest with yourselves. It's not about telling the truth, right? And we can do this if we just slow ourselves down sometimes. This kind of takes me back to my passionate comment, right? Sometimes we just have to slow ourselves down, slow our mind down, slow our thoughts down, not react instantly to a situation just on a purely emotional level. Sometimes I try to practice that. I think emotions and situations, right, where where they come and go after all. And by simply observing them, we can start to understand then that really this isn't as complicated as I thought. It's not as complicated as it may seem. That's probably why we call it a practice. What you said there, I think is really important in that sometimes it, it is easier for a leader maybe to be authentic, but I also think that if the leader is authentic and they're encouraging that can become a lot easier for their team. And that's why I think that to your point, as a leader, you know, you need to drive some of those things home because your message to your team can make it easier for them to do some of those things in the practice and you know, to be themselves, to be more comfortable. That's huge. And I think in the world of engineering, a lot of times younger professionals might be scared of their managers or fear their supervisors, and then they're not able to kind of be themselves. And so it really is your job as a leader to set the atmosphere for your team and to create that comfortable atmosphere where people are willing to open up a little bit and maybe share some things with you that they need to share to be the best that they can be in terms of engineering, in terms of person, quite frankly. So it's great to hear you talk about that. And so earlier on, you mentioned that you're also an adjunct professor at Notre Dame. Talk a little bit about the course that you teach and how it relates to what you do as a city engineer. This course that I teach is entitled Community-Based Project Leadership. So it's really a unique opportunity I was asked to take on with the College of Engineering. It was born from a partnership between the city and a center at the university called the Center for Civic Innovation. And their mission is to promote the common good by building partnerships between Notre Dame and other community organizations to foster research and educational programs in the community. And the course itself is a practicum in both leadership and management. It's an opportunity to work on real-world changes, challenges in our city, either with the city or with a community partner, maybe a neighborhood organization. It's actually multidisciplinary, so it's not specifically civil. However, it naturally tends to align with something with a civil focus. Students learn how to take a project from the concept of the project to the completion. And it's a project that they define with the stakeholders, not for them. And therefore, they learn to engage, plan, design, and then execute on some portion of the project, which we typically do in the form of a build day. In last year, in 2021, my students actually had the chance to work with an organization called El Campito, which is licensed pre-K center founded back in the 70s as a daycare for children of migrant farm workers. It serves about 75 children, 70% of them live in poverty, and 60% are Hispanic. Earlier that year, I also had a group of interns <laughs> that had already engaged with this neighborhood. And a lot of the concerns actually that they identified were related to traffic calming. So there's a lot of work to be done here. So it seemed like a good fit for my students to pick up on this effort that fall. 
So we spent the first part of the course listening to the residents' needs. We engaged with the stakeholders around their issues, and we were expecting them to say, yeah, we want you to work on traffic calming or something like that. But at the same time that year, a few neighbors had started a community garden for the center, for the center's children and for the neighborhood. They quickly began dreaming about something larger, a larger scale neighborhood farm or community farm. And what we heard was that this first garden was really productive, but it was labor intensive. They had to manage it every day. They had to water it. And in order to water it, they had to run a hose about 500 feet, I think it was, across a playground where the children play every day and across a parking lot. My students heard this and all of a sudden we heard this greater need, right? We needed to help them facilitate this. So the students worked with the organization to help them create a master plan. How could this dream of a neighborhood farm come to fruition? They also designed a drip irrigation system. And then we actually joined with the staff and volunteers and neighbors on a work day to help prep the center in the spring and install this irrigation system. We had some help. We had a local contractor help us out. But in that one day, we were able to change their whole operation and help them find some ease in what was a a really arduous task for their staff and neighbors. To me, it's these types of classes that are some of the most valuable classes that you take as engineers, because for me as a civil engineer, It's the interaction with the community, the interaction with people that can really help you in your career to grow as a civil engineer, as a leader in the community. I mean, you can learn structures and stormwater, and those are, like you said earlier, they're technical, they're the equations that we tend to be good at, we tend to like to dig into. But I feel like it could be harder to learn the community interaction side of it, you know, interacting with people, understanding their thoughts, figuring out how you can get out there in the community. And so, It's great to hear that you're kind of having an impact in that way. And that's definitely exciting. I read this, right? I I can't imagine that I did. You can't possibly be doing an MBA. Are you doing an MBA right now? I don't know how, but yes. Tell us about that. I think an MBA is a really great way for engineers. I mean, we're masters at solving technical problems, but this gives us an opportunity to advance our soft skills. Throughout my education, I have never even taken a business course, right? I've not had an economics course, nothing of the sorts. And so I've really enjoyed the opportunity to take courses that focus on people management, focus on leadership. It's been great. I've been able to do some fun research through the MBA, as well as take some of the more technical courses on the financial side. So. That can be a wonderful mix for an engineer. Like you said, we often need to understand the finance side of engineering. We don't necessarily get that, unfortunately, you know, just in our own school. I mean, you know, they can't teach us everything in undergrad. There's limitations, obviously. We need to fulfill certain technical components to our education. So it's good to hear that. And you're also doing some research around women's career commitment to engineering. Is that right? Can you talk about that? That's right. So this research that I'm still developing was part of a course, and the course focused on evidence-based analysis or evidence-based management. And that's the concept of making management decisions based on the best knowledge of what actually works. 
we have to take into consideration anecdotal evidence as well, especially you know in my job. I'm listening to neighbors and residents, so I know that that has a part. But evidence-based management derives principles from research evidence and translates them into practices that solve organizational problems. I don't know about you, but I'm an evidence junkie, so I really love evidence. I had a short period of time there. Well, when I was doing my PhD where I got to work on explosives and I thought for sure, maybe I'd end up working for the FBI, but that didn't happen. This research centers around the steps to perform an evidence-based analysis, and they allow us to tackle complex problems, which in this case I've defined as what are the factors that affect a woman's commitment or persistence in their engineering career? We know that in terms of a woman's commitment to engineering, 47% of the labor force is women. And when you look at women in careers, in engineering careers specifically, and compared to men in engineering careers, when we get about 10 years into our careers, only about 40% of the women remain. And then men's retention rate, it starts to stabilize, but women's continues to decline. 30 years into their career, a woman is about half as likely to report that they're still working in this field. So that's concerning to me, to many of us. We start this research, you have to make sure you're asking a question that the research can answer. So that's where this question came from. And we develop a model and we look at all the causal factors and their effects on the outcome. And then we follow that with a systematic analysis where maybe we look at meta-analysis and then we assess the risks and advocate for solutions. So I'm in that last part. I mean, I could talk for hours on this. Throughout this research, I didn't come up with a reliable, consistent influential factor in the research, but I didn't uncover some good insights. And it pointed to things like leader member exchange, how we interact with our leaders, the presence of a female engineering role model. These things all may increase a woman's commitment to engineering. We also saw, and it's probably not surprising to hear, that job attitude, job involvement, satisfaction, STEM identification, that is one. How do we identify with what we're doing? Work-family conflict, burnout, those were all factors and they make sense. They resonate with me. Burnout is a real thing, um, especially in our current climate satisfaction with the work is definitely important. It's one of the reasons I drive home our mission and it's why and the why behind what we do to my team. But I'm still progressing this work. The last part is part of a survey that I'm conducted and I'm going through the data right now. And that hopefully will tell us something about how these results can compare to the results that we see in the literature now? Can we validate what we saw in the literature? Is that part of your MBA or is that a separate project? It's not. It's just for fun. All right. So I'm going to ask you one last question in this segment as we wrap up this segment. We just heard about a million different things you're doing and you mentioned burnout. How do you avoid burning out? How do you keep some kind of balance in your life based on all the different balls that you're juggling? I try to handle burnout by remembering that my work will be there the next day, trying not to take it home. I'm sure I made that. I know I made that mistake early on in my career. So I try to tell engineers that, you know, you can let it go. I also try to have things outside of work. A lot of people know this. A lot of my colleagues know I love fitness. I've been teaching fitness for almost 30 years. 
I try to put my health ahead. You know, I, I try to create um, health as a priority in my life in every one of in every day. What's important when it comes to work-life balance that I've learned is that it's really a mindset. A big part of it's your mindset, right? Like you said, you can take your work home with you mentally, or you could leave it at work. And a lot of times that's just up to the person, right? It's not like if you go home and don't think about it versus you go home and do think about it, it doesn't necessarily change the project, right? You're not going to call someone at nine o'clock at night and talk about the project. It's just you having to carry that home with you. I do a lot of yoga and meditation myself only because for many reasons, but one of them being is because we need an ability to slow down in our lives because especially with this pandemic and everyone's working all the time, people are remote more. So I like the idea of mindset being critical to work-life balance because sometimes the whole idea of balance is just us being able to let go of certain things. It's not like we're going to have less work. I mean, the work is always going to be there. Like you said, it's a matter of how we approach it. And so that's a great kind of take on that there in terms of mindset. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to pepper Kara with a couple last questions on our civil engineering hot seat and wrap this one up. We'll be right back. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right. We are back with Dr. Kara Boyles, a registered professional engineer who became the city of South Bend's first female city engineer. Kara shared a lot of great insights with us so far in this episode. But now, Kara, it's time for you to go on Civil Engineering Hot Seat. Are you ready? Ready. First question. Do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? Maybe it's a morning routine or a lunchtime routine or just something that you do consistently on a daily basis that has contributed to your success? So I'm not a morning person, but I do wake up and go to the gym every morning before work. This gives me a little bit of quality time. I like the fact that my house is quiet in the morning and I get that little bit of time to myself. Some days I'm teaching and some days I'm solely there for me and my workout. But I found in terms of consistency that that's the time that I can make it happen. Uh, There are too many variables throughout the rest of the day that could just throw off any other good intentions (laughs) after work. So let me ask you this. Is there a a book that you might have read that stuck out to you in your life that like you always remember it? Maybe you always mention it to people that you could share with our listeners. I read a book recently, and then I also gave a copy of this book to each of my summer interns in order to set them up for their main project this summer. And it's called Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America. It's written by urban planner and an author. Her name is Angie Schmidt. And it's a call to action in which she examines why pedestrian deaths are on the rise in our country. She sheds a lot of light on how the media portrays pedestrian crashes and how victims are often blamed, if not forgotten. This is important to me, I'm a civil engineer. We have a policy in the South Bend and South Bend for complete streets. So we're really working actively to you know, change that narrative around how streets should be designed. One of my colleagues gave this to me, and he himself is an urban planner. And I credit a lot of our interactions, as well as those that I've had with other city planning team members, for helping me see the opportunity that I have as the city engineer to really improve our infrastructure so we can create safer, more equitable streets and turn a safer, equitable, more city. Thinking back on your managers that you've had in the past throughout your career, and and you don't have to name anyone specifically, but if you think of some of your favorite managers, what were the skills or traits or actions that they took that made them your favorite? What makes for great leaders in, in the civil engineering world? 
I feel fortunate that I've had quite a few amazing managers, but I think the one thing that stands out among them was they were all good mentors. Most of these were probably more informal mentoring relationships, but what I knew was that this manager was invested in me. They were invested in my career path and they wanted to see me grow as an engineer. I try to embrace that same characteristic now with my own team, even if that means they might end up leaving the city as a part of their career progression, right? Because if that's next best step for them, then I'm all for it. If you're a manager in the world of civil engineering, you're leading a team of people, if you consider their career growth and you help them with their career growth and you mentor and guide them, there's really nothing better that you can do for them than that. And I know it sounds sometimes obvious, but I've talked to a lot of engineers and They don't necessarily get that connection because, listen, at the end of the day, people are busy. People have project deadlines, but your team is really everything in the world of engineering and, you know, helping them develop is really the best thing you can do. So it's great to hear that. Kara, we've got one final question for you. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. So if you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and you only had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her, and you could give them career advice in 30, 40 seconds, what advice would you give them? When you go home, leave your work behind. Start every day over, maybe every week over if you have to, because there's going to be hard days. There's going to be hard days you feel like you failed. And sometimes priorities just change and you can't take that personal. Sometimes you need to reframe, right? Ask yourself, what is the lesson I was supposed to learn here from this experience? I also wish I'd known earlier to bring my whole self to work and not feel that need to hide parts of me. And don't wait for opportunities. Engage, speak up, be specific in terms of what you want. What do you want to accomplish? Think of what you can do to be seen as a leader. Where does your boss need help? Can you take something off their plate? Can you lead this effort? A good leader will embrace this and probably be very grateful. And then you get the chance to grow your skill set as an engineer. Kara Boyles, the first female city engineer in the city of South Bend. I'm grateful that you spent some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kara. She has had a career that's been wide-ranging in a lot of different experiences, a lot of different jobs, dealing with different people. And these are the types of people I like to talk to on the podcast because if we can learn from some of their experiences, you can really hopefully leverage that in your career. You can find the full show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. We recently overhauled the website at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. It makes it much easier to find the different podcasts. Podcast pages are easier to navigate. You can kind of see the guests, see the topics. So definitely check it out. We've got a library of resources that could be beneficial for you in your career. And until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.